0: Greetings, Mr. and Mrs. Middle America and all the ships at sea. And for George Norrie, this is Ian Punnett. And to the hostile, invading, alien armies hovering silently just out of Earth's atmosphere. Or maybe beneath it. Uh, Remember, eat the Canadians first. So, been a big week of news. Lots going on. And yet, the story that keeps tripping me out <laughs> is the story about the starfish. Did you see that? Get back to that in a second. Uh, tonight we have a, a guest. I think this will be fun. You know, I, I have to say it's been a it's been a minute since I've done a a show about underground bases or um, caves with reptilians or any of the other research that's been done by our guest tonight, uh, John Rhodes. I look forward to talking to him. I tell you up front because it's important. I always believe in transparency. Uh, That's like a bridge too far for me. I mean, I really enjoy the shows, and I hope you'll enjoy this one. I know I will, but I can't quite get my mind around the the science, if you will, of it. Like, what are the physics of it? I just watched this great series on, I think it was on Netflix, hosted by Morgan Freeman about the creation of the planet. And there were lots of things in there that make me go, what? You know, I mean, it's not that, it's not that we know everything or that we're not still learning new things about our environment. But this is one I think we would know. Um, So we'll get back to that coming up. In just a moment, also coming up tomorrow night on Coast to Coast, we'll talk about holy food. This is a great book uh, about the sacramental use of food, about the importance of food uh, in religion and in the way in which we conduct our lives. And it may become increasingly more important again if the climate keeps changing. I don't know if you saw that story but uh there's another year of el nino on the way and this el nino weather pattern really does affect the way crops can be grown in spring how late harvest goes or doesn't i mean so if food becomes more scarce or we reach a kind of you know if we if we're eating like blue cubes coming up or something it is going to change our society uh, there is this age-old connection between the scarcity of food, and and how it's formed us as people, and we'll do that as the main guest coming up tomorrow night on Coast to Coast, and then our friend John Pelton Young, who is is you know I'm so sorry I just for a moment it's Robert, and I just I kind of like blanked out for a second. Um, It's Robert Young Pelton. I do that all the time with him. In fact, I have to look up his name like three times because I keep flipping the names around. He's one of my favorite guests, too, which is funny. Um, But he's going to talk about the world a little bit. He's traveled by foot. Uh, He's met with the mullets. He's met with these tribes. He's met with a lot of the different people that are in the, the news today. And we'll talk about that tomorrow night with, let me try it again. Robert Young Pelton, <laughs> uh, but first, um, let's get to the let's get to the subject which pushes us all uh, about reptilians and let me say before I do, back to the starfish thing, which I put a pin in, I don't know if you saw this story. CNN was reporting a new scientific breakthrough that finally explains how starfish are constructed i mean it falls under you know sort of these interesting topologies and you know we've learned a lot about starfish over the years Uh, and we kind of romanticize it because it's in the shape of a star and we have stars on the beach and stars in the sky and all of that Uh, but the the real story that scientists believe they have determined once and for all I find it's like one of the trippiest things I've read about in a long time, which is sort of a perfect introduction to our topic next. And then we'll do open lines on Coast to Coast AM. This is Ian Punnett. Well, let me wrap up that CNN story so that we can go into our main guest before we do open lines on Coast to Coast, because I think the two are kind of interrelated. Uh, And I say that because I believe we're always learning new things. And there are things that have been with us for millennia, that we thought we understood but don't, Uh, one of those has been starfish, (laughs) right? So starfish had been considered, I remember I learned about them in like high school or something, Um, and then when I was uh, scuba diving for a while, we used to encounter them all the time, uh, big and small, that starfish supposedly had this layer of tube feet beneath them Uh, that could help move the marine creature along the seafloor and then essentially feed that five-slit kind of gullet that it used to collect and pass up food. And then these five identical arms were somehow connected to kind of a central brain. So now genetic research suggests the exact opposite, that sea stars are largely bodiless heads. They lack torsos or tails. Um, And that they are just kind of like a head that has learned how to walk. (laughs) Oh, man. You know, I mean, that's like right out of sci-fi stuff. So... I passed that along to you. You can Google it. You can find out more. It was in CNN's Wonder Theory Science Newsletter. But, again, that brings me back to, well, what else don't we know? Uh, John Rhodes is a researcher. He is known affectionately um, as uh, the crypto hunter, and he joins us now on Coast to Coast. Hi, John.
1: Hi, Ian. How are you doing this evening?
0: I'm doing great. I loved reading you through your website, and I can tell I mean, there's like a line where it's like, okay, to, that's really interesting, interesting, dotted line, and then big black line I can't seem to get over. So I look forward to having this conversation with you tonight, and thank you for your patience in advance.
1: No, no problem at all. I look forward to talking with you and listening to questions from the audience, of course.
0: Good. Because your basic FAQ page is good. Um, the website uh, Reptoids.com can be linked up to at coasttocoastam.com. and you can contact him there and you can see what he reads and you can find out a lot more about his research. but let's let's just start at, at the beginning. okay so i I imagine the there has to be some sort of lineage. Some sort of origin story, something that you link that brings us back to how is it that reptile-like alien creatures are here with us, coexisting but mostly underground?
1: Well, that's the key question. Um, It looks like, you know, our Earth produces some quite fantastic creatures over time, like you were just mentioning with the starfish. I uh, tar- starfish, the bodiless brain, walking yeah. around on Disney It's Ray. so freaky. It's just so yeah. weird. I mean, it's like there's that Ray
0: Milan movie I keep thinking about, right, or whatever. Yeah, with Rosie Greer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, so so Canada, you, you think it was. Yeah, we're learning about
1: that, right? So what what can you verify? Um, the. The real backbone to when I started getting seriously involved in this is, not, is of course listening to the patterns of individuals and their, um, their abductions or their sightings back in the very early 1990s. Um, I kind of listened to what they had to say and I, and I heard that it was different than what everybody else was talking about and I went on the internet, what was the internet at that time. And there was absolutely zero mention of reptilians on the Internet. It was quite remarkable. And I was thinking, well, why hasn't anybody at least talked about this? And uh, what I found was is that um, uh, these cases, when you started pursuing the science behind it and the potential for these creatures being here, these beings, I should respectfully say, um, that – um, there was a paleontologist by the name of Dale Russell, and Dale Russell was, uh, was approached by NASA to, and asked about what would um, aliens look like on a different planet. And what he did with his um, associate up in the Museum of Canada, up in Ottawa, uh, the Museum of Nature up in uh, Ottawa, they produced a, um, a model uh, what the dinosaur called truodon, which was walking upright on two legs, and he had a nice grasping thumb. It was kind of unusual. And his brain was starting to get larger than the other dinosaurs. He was walking up on two legs. His eyes were coming from this over time. They could tell the eyes were moving more towards each other, allowing, uh, by, uh, allowing um, stereo vision, which allows you to have better depth perception. And what he did is he produced this model and presented it to NASA, and it was basically of a humanoid reptile. And he said, uh- given the morphological changes over time that we can see, if um, the dinosaurs had not been wiped out, almost because birds survived or dinosaurs that became the birds, right, right, um, what would these creatures look like? And the model was this very striking image. And I looked at it, and I couldn't believe it. I actually called him up, and I said, uh, Mr. Russell, I said, it's hard to believe that these things could be the way they are, and I'm interested in researching this. And he was very open and talked about the difficulties he encountered, um, from his, also from his fellow colleagues. And he said to me towards the end of the conversation that really the pursuit of this question would not be professionally economical. Which means that you're going to be you're going to be finding it hard as a you're going to be hounded. <laughs> to, yes, you're going to be finding it hard to pay your bills as a scientist if you start pursuing this line of thought. And um, th- not only uh, were uh, NASA involved, also over in Los Alamos in the 1980s, they had a fellow colloquium meeting to discuss extraterrestrials, which included Frank Drake and. They actually addressed the whole issue of Dale Russell's dinosauroid. They called oh. it the dinosauroid, and um, they said this could potentially be something that we're looking at uh, on another planet. But then I started thinking, well, wait a minute. Some of the most ancient records here on Earth talk about uh, reptiles that had a humanoid form, or at least could talk. And, I mean, biblically, they received these stories from ancient times, you know, to say what kind of truth is in this little nugget here. Right. Because remember, the original religious text that the Jews had, they actually talk about the serpent in the Garden of Eden as having two legs of a man and two arms of a man that could actually run through the garden after Adam, threateningly. Right. And they say he was as tall as a camel. So when I started hearing these scientific reports projecting what would have happened. And then we know the birds survived. And they, they flourished. And they diversified considerably over time. And they don't, repre- they don't look like dinosaurs like we would think dinosaurs would look like. Then it, gave, it started occurring to me. But maybe we're getting something where we have a remote group of these creatures who may have also survived underground. in in an environment that reptiles are quite used to, and could they have evolved over time parallel to mankind on the surface? And this seemed to fit a lot of the mythologies that we had ranging from Near Eastern to Middle Eastern to Asian and also to Western mythologies or religions and the books that talked about the ancient times. And that's really kind of what pushed me further and further into the question.
0: Well, so there's a difference, as you know, between the age of reptiles and the age of dinosaurs, right? You know, hundreds of millions of years between those two things. Um, Largely, reptiles got uh, wiped out after the age of reptiles, except for those that had gone underground. And the same thing's true in the age of dinosaurs. There were more than just birds, but not many. Uh, species that that burrowed and w- had found a way to survive um, the uh, end of the age of dinosaurs, where they reemerged and then began the, um, you know, all of the the branches from there came from those from those creatures. Some of those include crocodiles and alligators and other things that we know of. But there's other, there's a few other, a handful of other species. So that 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 is an interesting theory that underground you know things survived but how, how tell me about this concept though that a rep a reptile with a developing brain and as a bicameral vision um, would be able, able to walk on two legs- is there any evidence that that well, yeah, particular din- dinosaur yeah, ever lived yeah, underground?
1: Di- the truodon was already walking on two legs. A lot of people right. realize most of the dinosaurs were uh, going into bipedalism.
0: Right. Well, a lot that's of them the were. Legs. A lot of them were right, and especially even right. the ones that walked on all fours still fed by you know by by leaning backward and depending on their back legs. But let's answer the question: Is there any evidence that says the truodon at any time was a, was living under the ground?
1: No, there isn't any evidence of that. Okay. Um, but we've got to remember that m- most reptiles do seek cover under some sort of shelter. They're not just sleeping out in sure. the right. open all the time. And well, they, is, they're right. ectothermic, so they've got to, they've got to preserve their body temperatures.
0: Yeah, no, and I totally get if that. If
1: they're underground, we've just barely skimmed the surface of our planet. We haven't even walked on every meter of our planet. So, you, that, you know, there's an entire underworld under our feet that's unexplored. Um, one two thousandth of the Earth's surface actually has entrances into caverns and caves. Yeah. And most people don't go into those caverns and caves. And ever since the 1988 Federal Cave Resources Act went into effect, Um, That basically made it forbidden for people to go walking into caves without a federal cave expert. Sure. And they say if you do, you can go to jail.
0: No, no. Interesting. But to the degree that it it is germane to the actual creature. So – and this is – again, this is my skepticism showing. But if it's – so there are – Evolutionary motives, right? There are forces that impact species, and it. I just try. I'm trying to figure out what in this concept of reptiles going underground and continuing to pursue bipedalism, and um, that they had, you know, as you said, sort of rudimentary opposing thumbs, and that they had a developing brain. What was the? What was the? F- why why were they morphing what was what was being exerted on them that they would continue to morph as though they were living on the surface
1: um i think that we're talking about a convergence an evolutionary convergence which means that the that the environment itself has pressures on the physical form that tend to push things in, in different ways
0: right lack so, of oxygen lack of food that's right and
1: you know there's a um, paleontologist by the name of Simon Conway Conway over in England and he believes that reptiles and humans could have also achieved a convergent evolution over time. And so, so- th- we've got other scientists that look at these body forms and they go, well, morphological changes over happen over time sometimes according to the the teachings of evolution. We get these periods called punctuated equilibriums, which is a scientific term meaning that evolution, some process happens on the planet to where things can change shape rather quickly. Um, The sea anemone is one. Uh, That used to be like these spiny little creatures. They are the spiny little creatures you don't dare step on. I've stepped on quite a few and pulled those thorns out, those spikes. Um, But uh, a long time ago, they were rather flowery, beautiful Creatures, And then it seems like overnight, all around the planet, they changed not just in one area, but all around the planet. And so yeah. these periods are very fast. It's not slow change over long periods of time, but right. very fast changes. Uh, and y- y- and y- we're y- all y- under these pressures in our environments, and even humans, if you could speed it up, I'm sure have made the same type of changes in body size. I mean, you go to London and some of the, some of these older villages over in europe and you notice the houses are rather some of them are rather small and the front doors are rather small and you're like why is is everything so small it's because a long time ago we didn't have six foot average heights or five foot right and it just wasn't that way
0: yeah uh and of course the british are notoriously poor basketball players um, you're talking about the Stephen Jay Gould um, theory of punctuated equilibrium. I, I know a little bit about that. Uh, but that 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 brings me back to, though, how sophisticated a vision you have for the re- these reptilians. And as you mentioned, the many entrances and exits that might exist. We'll find out more. John Rhodes is great. We're having a great time. It's a fun Friday night on Coast to Coast AM. This is Ian Punnett. Sorry, I had my mic off. Talking with uh, John Rhodes on Coast to Coast AM. Then we'll do open lines coming up tomorrow night. Um, I, I'll i tell you more about it later because I want to get right back to this. So we we would agree that there are evolutionary needs, right? Which then it, it changes the pigment of our human skin, those people living closer to the equator. Um We see blind fish in the deepest ocean develop uh, lights on top of their head to attract prey, which then they're able to sense and then eat. It would make no sense for a crocodile or an alligator to develop a light on the top of its head if it didn't produce more food or attract a mate or whatever. So... Part of me it struggles with this concept of how was it then that these reptoids uh, developed and or continued to flourish under the ground to the point where as you suggest uh, they have evolved. So let's put that aside for now. Uh, that having been said, explain how what you think the qual- the qualitative, research that you've done, all of the interviews, the collection of stories, what does it indicate to you about what's going on underneath our feet?
1: Well, it's twofold, I believe, or almost threefold. Um, First of all, we have our own military industrial complex dug in around the planet, and we're talking about thousands of underground bases, not just a few, just I'm talking thousands. And it's not only here in the United States, and some of the other developed countries and perhaps even undeveloped countries, they have them. Um, so we use that because our military has learned a long time ago the best place to hang out is underground. In World War I and a lot in World War II, a lot of the war was fought in underground tunnels and underground bases that the Nazis had. That's one of the things about World War II we don't see very often in the movies, um, I've got, um, you know, reports of some of these underground bases are quite large. Right. And, I and agree. For example, I'm going to just give you a, a quick one here. A lot of people don't realize um, in in the newspaper report of 1946 in the St. Louis Star and Times, they said that a gentleman by the name of Zantaro Tanaka, he was 26, a Jap- Japanese corporal. He was caught in Korea. Um, by the Soviets in 1945. He said, I'll read it here, I was blindfolded and put in on train. We rode all night. The next day we were unloaded in Iman, and that's the name of the town. It, the name of the town has actually changed since then. We were hauled into trucks and pointed outside the city, given shovels and put to work. 50,000 prisoners were scooping the earth from a gigantic plane there to make an underground airport. There were 80, eight zero, Radiating runways each 1,000 meters or 3,280 feet in length and they said about one third of the prisoners died building it and this was on the Soviet-China border. Right. So that gives you an idea in 1945 of the kind of places they were building. Now we're talking about a, a, a hub-shaped circular airport or military installation that has runways faced in all directions 80 of them. So they can just fire out aircraft like unbelievable, like the Thunderbirds in the old TV show.
0: Thunderbirds are go.
1: Yeah, Thunderbirds go. So um, when you hear of that and then you put it together with the fact that um, um, ever since then, um, I've seen I've read newspaper reports talking about um, large dirigibles in World War Two being Uh stored underground in large underground hangars. I right. haven't heard of any of those ever been d- being discovered or talked about. So we have all kinds of strange things going on underground by our own military. And on top of that, um, we have perhaps extraterrestrials who are visiting the planet, and I just can't seem to, I can't seem to reason why they would come such great distances only to hang out for a day or two and then head back home. At least we knew when we were watching Star Trek, those guys would set up some sort of monitoring base where they couldn't be seen so they could watch the inhabitants of the planet and study them. And and I believe to some great extent that's also happening. Okay. Um, how long some of these extraterrestrials have been here, I don't know. They may have had generations of them born on the planet that think that this is also their home planet because this is where they were born. So that could be happening.
0: Okay, but let's... Uh, let- Let's pause that. So the idea of the U.S. military or any military around the world building underground bases makes sense, right? I mean, the, for, especially because of aerial bombing, Correct. In World War II, you know, you, you, you went you went underground. Not the mili- You know, the Pentagon does not list every installation, uh, and. Many of them are very intricate uh, to the degree that they could support, you know, hundreds of thousands of people or, or a very complex life. I don't know, but they seem very kind of functional. Um, so they were functional to the point where it could be a plane. It could be a dirigible. It could be a, a train that came in and out. It could be a lot of things. And it, it was and there were people who were POWs. Obviously, a lot of Jews were were forced to dig and build and reinforce these underground bunkers for the Nazis themselves to survive or attempt to win the war, even if it was just for testing organizations. But that still doesn't put me closer to the concept of why—what's What? What's your vision then for these reptilians? What? What would— Are you saying they take over the vacant bases? I mean, that's what I'm trying to understand, the connection you're making.
1: I believe that we have our own underground bases, but there are also probably very remote locations in which these craft fly from, also using the underground to shield themselves from being monitored by satellites or anything else. For us to see lights in the sky, we are just automatically assuming that if they outperform our aircraft and people say they're anomalous, that they must come from... Outside our planet, or from another dimension, we have since the 1930s been redirected. Back in in the old days, literature used to be filled with, "Oh, what's living underground? What kind of monsters? What kind of lost civilizations?" And all of a sudden, the entire subject matter of phenomenon changed, and we were looking off our planet. And I really believe that's kind of a form of a distraction, where they say, "Look off our planet and think about the subject matter." Meanwhile, what's happening here underground on our own planet?
0: Yeah, I, you know, as I was reading your website, again, we're talking with John Rhodes. You can link up to him at com, and go take a look at the stories he's collected and the research that he has done on the subject of reptoids, especially those that live in these complicated or sophisticated um, communities underground. Uh, I. I agree that it's the stuff. I mean, as I was reading, I thought this is the stuff of Jules Verne. Yeah. Right. This is this. This is the stuff of H. G. Wells to to name two original authors on on subjects like this.
1: So For Arthur Arthur C. Clarke, let me just jump in right. real quick. Arthur C. Clarke, Clark, when he wrote his book *Childhood's End*, he refers to the alien that came down to Earth as looking like the devil, and our classical. Are classical descriptions of the devil or of a of a reptile talking, and right. the old descriptions, like I said, are also of them walking. And,
0: well, I get that, but you know, remember they, that the other part of that Genesis narrative, of which I am very familiar, is that God created all of the creatures in the Garden of Eden without exception. Mm-hmm. So you know, it, there is no discussion. Of a, of a serpentine-like creature coming down from heaven, entering into the otherwise perfect garden. Um, I'll grant you, he's, he's the only one, that serpent is the only thing that is mentioned as having the ability to talk or to communicate. Um, but that's, again, that's kind of part of the story, right?
1: That's just kind of part of the story, uh, we don't, you know. Remember these guys that wrote th- these religious works a long time ago. They were taking taking information that they were provided and writing it down in some sort of a digestible manner. And when right. they composed, when they composed the Bible, they were basically including all of these myths from all around the world and trying to find out the common denominators between all of them, so they could invite members of other religions over to the Christian religion, mm-hmm. because oh. Oh, you have, in Babylon? What you have a guy that was swallowed by a fish? But we have that story as well.
0: Well, that you know, that predates Christianity, though. So that, uh, that
1: right, that predates. Right.
0: So I, but to make that point, it wasn't all over the world. It was all over the region that God took different names and different forms, and so this, in order to include every group. They're all kind of mashed in there together, under the understanding that they're they're different names for the same thing, and so yeah, the Babylonian exile is a good example. Uh, you know, there are other myths about Babylonian ex. There's other myth about about uh, a giant fish, a Noah narrative. I mean, there's all sort of a flood, obviously. Right. I mean, all sorts of. But okay, so. Where, again, tell me the vision of what you think is going on underneath our feet right now.
1: Well, I think that we have small groups of advanced cultures, um, human and non-human, living underground. And um, they feel very well preserved down there. If anything happens like some sort of cosmic disaster where everybody on Earth is Destroyed right. from a comet or something like that hitting the planet. They're, they're going to survive because they're underground. Um, I think that most of them have retreated under there, if not for safety from the environment, from safety from us, because we are one vicious animal species group on the planet.
0: Yeah, we're the most dangerous anyway.
1: What yeah, about well, uh could I read on Facebook someday, you know, someday?
0: yeah, no no I'm with you there. <laughs> if we go by social media, we are the most vicious.
1: Hey, listen, when the aliens drive past <laughs> Earth, they lock their doors, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: funny. Um all right, so but so then but if we're talking about the truodon and then the truodon's descendants, um it, if it continued to grow underground when the above-ground dinosaurs have been wiped out, what would be the reason? Are you, um, hmm, how, how is it that that civilization goes on to be so sophisticated as you imagine?
1: Well, I, I, I believe it's more – I wouldn't call it sophisticated because we have sophistication as well. But I think that because of the different brain types, their brains are working completely different than ours. Right. And so how we perceive science and what we can learn from it may be two different things. We have common things we could learn, but also things that are pretty distinct to how our brain is functioning and what it allows us to even think. Okay. And so uh, when you're talking about sophisticated learning, um, I've talked to some really, really intelligent people at times you know, who are really sophisticated. And, and there's others at times that I've talked to that aren't. And, I, and it's not so much that they're all sophisticated. I believe that we have some maybe near-surface uh, near pocket groups of, of creatures that also answer to the same physical description, like that was discovered in 1988 down in um, Bishopville, South Carolina.
0: Which is a great, uh, Which is a great tab on your website. Do you want to yeah, tell the story right. of Bishopville?
1: Well, in uh, 1988, uh, a young boy was changing a tire out in the middle of the a swamp road, and it was a, it was late at night, early morning. And as he was changing the tire, he saw something running through the swamp area towards his direction. And he he said it was upright, and it had glowing red eyes, and it was running fast towards him. And he got scared. He jumped yeah. in his car, put through the rest of the tools in the front seat, jumped in the car and started driving down the road and something jumped on his roof and he could actually see a hand reaching down, trying to reach through the window and grab the side mirror. And when he got back home, he was so he was so scared he couldn't talk. And his family he started going into a fit and his family was wondering what's wrong. And they called the Sheriff Truesdale out, and Sheriff Truesdale's always kind of presented it he's presented as like this local you know southern sheriff but this this gentleman was a good friend of mine he was trained at the fbi uh, uh, courses over in, um, in, uh, with the fbi so he's he's had a lot of training behind him and so he started investigating what was going on around there and there were mo- multiple eyewitnesses that described something that was like a lizard man he was about seven seven and a half feet tall had large arms, he had a l- very muscular build and um, and it, this was reported by several people and in the end uh, of the entire uh, years and years of going through these different cases where people said their cars were kind of mauled and they think it All may it. have been by the blizzard man. Some of these may have been hoaxes but some of them certainly weren't because um, when the gentleman, when the young boy was brought into the station, he passed lie detector tests twice, okay, about what he had seen. Right. And, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Truesdale died just recently, and he said to me, no matter what's going on, he says, it's not normal. And he says, in those swamps in there, nobody can get in, they're so thick. He said, so you could have anything living in those swamps, deep in the swamps, and we wouldn't know it. And, and this is the same kind of thing where people have gone down to Bishopville and they said, no, this has got to be Bigfoot because people are fully invested in their research. So they'll try and go into other areas where it's the drawings and everything that's described as talking about a reptilian humanoid. But they come down and say, no, it must have been Bigfoot because that's what they know.
0: Right. Yeah, yeah. There's confirmation what? bias. Uh,
1: what? What? Do you, what do
0: you? What's the image then that you have in your head that you think is closest to what? This guy had in Bishopville.
1: Oh, you mean as far as in, in the social media? What it looks
0: like. What it looks like. I mean.
1: OK, so well, I can give you a physical description okay. we're talking about we're talking about beings that are um, on average, right? The ones that have been seen have been about anywhere from six and a half to about seven and a half to eight foot tall. Okay. They have large muscular arms and legs. They have scales across their body. The scales on their chest are more broad, like plates. Um, Their head is large. It's got a little bit of a crown on the top, kind of like a a gorilla. And they have um, no hair. Their eyes are almond-shaped. Their pupils have cat-like eyes with vertical slit pupils. Their um, hands have three fingers with an opposing thumb. And their feet seem to have a, a, a raised like a dewclaw, or, you know, a thumb, I guess, or an atrophied thumb, way up near where we have our ankle bone.
0: Mm.
1: And um, they also have no lips and no ears. So they might have a, a kind of a crustal-type ear, maybe a, a scale or something over where normal ears are, but the mouth has absolutely no no um, lips at all. It's just a very wide mouth. And this is what was described. And remember, when? by the way, I'm going to jump back to this thing about Arthur C. Clark when he wrote the book Childhood's End.
0: Well, well, you're going to have to hang on to that because we're coming up to the top of the hour. So we'll start with Arthur C. Uh, and uh, I, th- I think it's going to be a few minutes before we get to your calls. But at least by the bottom of next hour, uh, we'll open up the lines so you, too, can talk to John Rhodes. And then we'll do open lines. On Coast to Coast AM, this is Ian Ponet.